Uh, for the scripture reading this morning, would you turn with me to uh, John 4, uh, 4 chapter of John, and, uh, and we'll be reading uh, 1, verse 1 down through 26, uh, 1 down through 26 in chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. And so he came to the, to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And now Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And for his disciples had gone away into the city to, to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us a well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you and He. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank You for Your Word. and Look to You, Lord, as always. Acknowledging our dependence upon You. Lord, acknowledging our weakness. We come unable uh, in, in of ourselves to grasp these truths. So, Lord, we pray for enablement. I ask that You enable me to speak and deliver the very message You would have delivered. Lord, I ask that You grant clarity and accuracy in the exposition of Your Word. And Father, I pray that You open all of our ears to hear. Lord, grant that we may hear and understand Your truth 
and that it changes for our benefit and so that You are honored, glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Thank you, Zach. <clears throat> giving Zach a workout this morning. They're doing everything. <clears throat> but uh, much appreciated. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> it's hard to stop in the middle of this, but I told in the middle of this account, I told Zach to go ahead and stop at verse 26, but Lord willing, I want to come at it a little bit from a little bit of a different perspective tonight and move on into the, to the rest of the account, which really runs at least through verse 42. Um, but, uh, you know, I knew we wouldn't cover that much this morning. Uh, so, what we're going to talk about this morning is, is uh, what this is, and that is an encounter with the Christ, okay? An encounter with the Christ. Now remember, keep in mind, as we're moving through this Gospel account, that John, the evangelist, the Apostle John, uh, has a goal in writing. And that is so that we may believe on the Lord Jesus and believe that He is the Christ and believing may have life in Him. That's John 20, verses 30 and 31, which read, uh, which read like this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So it's kind of a twofold purpose. It is so that we may believe, and that's, that concept is, is a course, a running theme throughout the Gospel, faith, faith in Christ, belief in Christ, uh, believing into Him. So John says, I write so that you may believe, number one, believe that He is the Christ. He's very specific there. I want you to know that Jesus is the Christ. Now that's, um, you know, unless you're raised in church or whatever, you got some good background here in Old Testament, New Testament, that, that may be a little foreign uh, to our way of thinking. Uh, the Christ. What does the Christ mean? For, for the Jews, um, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Their long-awaited Messiah, the Anointed One. All right, that's what the word means. Um, Messiah in the Hebrew, uh, the Greek is Christos. Our word Christ means anointed. So when he says the Christ, he's talking about a specific individual that God has promised to send. The Anointed One. Uh, so, you know, the word is used uh, in other more common ways <clears throat> referring to uh, kings and priests and prophets and sometimes uh, the nation of Israel as a whole is referred to using the word. But, but uh, there is a context in which it, it means a specific individual. The Christ, the Anointed One, the Deliverer, the Rescuer, the Prophet, the one like Moses who would come to whom everybody should listen. And that's the sense in which John is using it. Jesus is the Christ. I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And secondly, that believing you may have life. So John says, I want you to believe, number one, and, and number two, I want you to have life through faith in Jesus in the fact that He is the Christ. So that's still in view here. So we're getting these accounts 
And, and we just need to keep that in mind that this is John's purpose uh, in, in everything that he shares. These different uh, encounters and dialogues like we had with Nicodemus and now with the woman at the well at Sikar, as well as uh, recording miracles, uh, signs, is the, words that, the word that John likes to use, signs. Uh, for example, we already saw uh, Jesus turning water into wine. So John is recording these things with the purpose that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life through believing in Him. Alright, so, another note here before we jump in these verses. I just mentioned Nicodemus. So we, we saw another encounter there. And one thing I want us to notice here is the contrast and how different these two individuals are. And I'm just kind of giving you this as background in case I don't you know, bring it out much as we move through here. But how different these individuals are, and I think this is one reason the Holy Spirit is giving us these two uh, accounts. And yet, both of them have the same need. Jesus. Here you have Nicodemus, who Jesus calls the teacher of Israel. I mean, Nicodemus is a highly esteemed Pharisee. So he's a religious leader, a highly esteemed man in the first century um, Jewish community, at least in Judea. He's educated. He's kind of like Paul. You know, Paul later says about himself, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, born of the stock of Abraham. You know, I was, I was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. So Paul, Paul gives his, his pedigree, so to speak, as a, as a Jew, as a Hebrew. Well, that's sort of the way it was with Nicodemus. He's, he's a, a highly educated man, a highly esteemed man, a religious leader. And yet we saw that he didn't even know the Scripture well enough to recognize really who Jesus was. And he didn't understand spiritual things. So, um, now we've got this woman who's none of those things that Nicodemus was. She's not a religious leader. She's not highly educated, uh, likely. And... and, uh, she, in fact, she's, she's in, in, in the eyes of Jews, she's a social outcast for a couple of reasons. One, just because of her ethnicity. <clears throat> she's, a, she's a Samaritan, and they were considered half-breeds. They were descendants from Jews who were left in the land of Israel during the Babylonian Empire, and they had, they had intermarried and intermixed with other uh, ethnic groups. And so they were looked down upon. So she didn't have the kind of social standing that Nicodemus had. She didn't have the kind of education that Nicodemus had. She, she wasn't a religious leader like Nicodemus. And then on top of that, she had morality issues. We're going to see here, you know, she's living with a man who's not her husband. And she's been through five husbands. So this is quite a contrast from Nicodemus to this woman at the well at Sikar. And yet, again, we're going to see in both cases, bottom line, just like every other person, they've got one common need to know the Christ, to know Him, to know who He is, to believe on Him, to follow Him, to have life 
in Him. So, religious leader <laughs> or social outcast, whatever, we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. So verse 1, and first, first um, and like I said, I'm going to call this an encounter with the Christ. And the first point here is uh, it is a planned encounter. Um, and I'll show you what I mean by that. You know, you, hear, you often hear people say, I can hear non-Christians say all the time, so it's amazing. Uh, it's usually when it's something they like, but, but people will say, uh, you know, I don't believe in accidents. You know, things happen for a purpose. And like I say, usually when you hear that coming from a, a non-Christian anyway, it's because something happened that they liked. <laughs> something they approve of. You don't hear it so much when, when it's something they disapprove of. Um, but that's kind of the situation here. It's, this, is a, this is not an accident, this encounter between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. Verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So He has been conducting uh, ministry already in, uh, in Judea this early on. But now he's, he's going back to Galilee. And verse 4 says, He had to pass through Samaria. So, <clears throat> the situation is this. We've got this little bit of a tension that we talked about last week and the discussion that arose back in verse 25 between the disciples of John and a Jew over uh, purification and the disciples of John seem concerned that Jesus is baptizing. You know that people are flocking to Jesus, and somehow the uh, or through these discussions, the Pharisees have wind of this, and and so Jesus sees the need to to move on, probably not wanting to um, bring more negative attention, maybe on John's uh, ministry because the Pharisees are scrutinizing everything, um, just to lie low and move on. I, I would assume. We're not given the specific reasons. But it does say he learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing more than John, so he decides to depart and go to, to, to Galilee. So there's, there's one need there just because of the circumstances. He, he feels like he needs to leave and, and move on. And then verse 4 says he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. And that's because that was the shortest route that was the common route between, uh, between Jerusalem and, and Galilee. Um, so it's, it's, it's sort of like saying, you know, if you're going to go from here up to Red Chute, which I do call Red Chute, not Halton, but if you're going to go from here up to Red Chute, you must need or you have to go through Princeton or whatever, you know, or East Point or something like that. It's on the way. It's on the route. All right? So that's, that's the way that he had to go. Now, Sometimes, um, and, and I want to point this out as well, uh, there's, a, there's a, a great emphasis put on that little phrase, he had to or he must needs go through. In other words, meaning that it was divine appointment. He had to go that way. Well, I certainly think that is true as well. And God, and I, in fact, I would just say all of the above. God, God often uses, it's His common way, it seems to me, using natural means to achieve His purpose. So Jesus had to go that way because it's the common route. But He also had to go that way because there was a woman that He intended to confront. 
an encounter. And so all of that, the circumstances with the Pharisees, the fact that it's the quickest route to Galilee, the fact that there's a divine appointment at work, all of that is working together in God's providence. So he had to go. That's, that's good news. I mean, it, it wasn't going to not happen. It wasn't going to not happen. Now, <clears throat> looking back, well, it's comforting to know that, that God is that much in control. And looking back, and you think about your life before Christ, and, and then your, when, when you encountered Christ, when Jesus confronted you, and, and you can look back and think, just in God's grace and in His sovereign power, it wasn't not going to happen. <laughs> that's an amazing, an amazing truth. When God determines to do something, He does it. So he had, to, he had to do it. He had to go through there. It was His will, His determination um, to go through there and encounter this woman. So, we go on. And again, verse 4 says, He had to pass through Samaria. So He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And that, of course, is Jacob of the Old Testament. Um, father of the nation of Israel, uh, Israel himself. And Jacob's well was there, verse 6. So, in other words, the, the idea is a well that is believed that it's a well that he dug. Still there today. I was just doing a little reading on it. And uh, D.A. Carson said um, in his commentary, we, we know the location of that well as well as we can know anything. Um, because there's there's been such uh, a, a consistent, long-running um, tradition, you know, uh, verbally and, and so forth, people knowing where it was. Uh, so uh, it's still there today, oh, still over 100 feet deep. So it's a, it's a deep well, and it's still, from what I read, uh, is is a good supply. I mean, it's fed by a natural spring. <clears throat> so interesting, and it's amazing that you could... Uh, Walk up to it today. Perhaps get a drink out of it. <laughs> so Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And you get a, uh, we're not going to deal with this much, but you, you, you do get some insight there to the full humanity of Christ. He was tired. He's fully God, yet fully man. So wearied from his walking as, as any other person would be, he sits down at the well. But then again, remember, although again, all those, all those things are true, the circumstances with the Pharisees, the fact that it's the quickest route, the fact that he's weary and that's why he stops at this point, all those things are true. Nevertheless, it is also true that it must happen. It's, it's a divine appointment. So he sits down at the well and it's about the sixth hour. That's probably noon, counting from 6 a.m. daylight, which would roughly be around there. So this is probably about noon. Jesus is tired, and obviously the men have, are hungry because we're going to see that the disciples are gone to get food. And uh, Jesus sits down to rest and then meets this woman. So secondly... <clears throat> This is a gracious encounter. Now, I've already 
touched on that a little bit, just talking about it being part of God's sovereign work. In other words, this is, this is an encounter that is initiated by God. It's not that the woman initiated this. Jesus must needs go through here. Jesus had to go this way on His journey. He had to encounter her on His journey. It's a gracious encounter. And we're going to see more grace here. Verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now, a couple things here. First of all, and this is one of the things I hope to come back and touch on a little bit tonight, but Jesus is doing what He does. If you watch for this throughout His ministry, He's living above the cultural biases. This is a woman. She's a Samaritan, number one. That's one strike. Number two, she's a woman, which, which um, just culturally, uh, it's, it's not that men didn't like women. You know, to some degree, men have always liked women, right? But just culturally, they had a lower state um, socially. So, so it would be unlikely for uh, a man probably to just strike up a conversation with a strange woman, unless, you know, unless uh, there, there's a real need to or unless something bad going on. So she's a Samaritan, social outcast as far as the Jews are concerned, and she's a woman. And yet, Jesus will start conversation with her. Now, it, it looks like on the surface, right at first, he says, give me a drink. So right at first, it doesn't look so gracious. It looks like, well, okay, he's tired and he's got a need and he, he, uh, he wants her to serve him. But in reality... What we're going to see is the reverse is true. He's, he has come there to serve her. He's not the one in need. She's the one in need. And she's not going to play out the role of servant here. He is. He's going to serve her need. So he's living above the biases. He's, 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 the fact that she's a Samaritan, the fact that she's a woman, and you put the two together, a Samaritan woman, he's going to disregard those things and speak to her about her spiritual need. And then secondly, he's setting the stage here for the conversation that's about to take place. I already said this is divinely initiated. Jesus brings this encounter about. Jesus brings the discussion about. And now he's, he's going to, uh, again as he does so well, He's going to manipulate, in a good way, He's going to manipulate the discussion to make it go where He wants it to go. That's because He's got purpose. He's, he, you never find Him just speaking idle words. He, he speaks with purpose. It's one reason it, it, it behooves us to listen to the Bible. Because this is God speaking, and He speaks with purpose. It's not, it's not just idle words. It's not, it's not just something you pick up and say, hmm, yeah, that's, that's impressive, and that all sounds like a good idea, and then just kind of walk away and forget about it. It, it behooves us to take notice. So, Jesus sets the stage for the conversation this way. He says, give me a drink. Now, as I said, on the surface, that sounds kind of 
sounds kind of self-serving. He's, he's got a need and he wants her to fill the need. Get me a drink. But we're going to see. There's a reason why he asked for water here. It has to do with where he's going with the conversation. So he says, give me a drink. And verse 8 gives us a little description about uh, why he's alone here. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. After all, it's noon or noonish. You know what happens when it gets close to noon. <laughs> we start thinking about food, right? I probably shouldn't even mention that. Start thinking about food because it's getting close to noon. And uh, that's, I guess that's what was going on with them. They, they went ahead and left so they uh, could beat all the, the Baptists, I guess, down to the, uh, <clears throat> down to the Golden Corral or wherever. Um, so they're going to get food. And then verse 9 says, The Samaritan woman said to him, Now catch this, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now see, she's picking up on his, his disregard for the biases here. And she's somewhat amazed by it. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan woman living in sexual immorality or if you're a Nicodemus enjoying the esteem of the society that you're a part of or whoever you are and I am, we ought to be amazed that Jesus would speak to us. Amen. And we ought to never cease to be amazed <laughs> that He and His grace would make a point to come and speak to us. That, again, it's something not to take lightly when, when, we, when we think back on past experience, our calling, our encounter, His illuminating as He begins to show us who He is and as He begins to open up the Word to us. Or even today, you know, as we, as we look at the Word, here He is speaking. He's speaking to us from His Word. And we ought to be amazed. We ought to be amazed that Jesus would take time to speak to us. And, and she says, you know, it's just me, just a lowly Samaritan woman. She's amazed that a Jew would do that. That he would disregard the biases. And so, again, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. I thought it was interesting, literally, that the idea there is don't share the same cup. Jews don't share the same cup with Samaritans. So why would you ask me for a drink? She's surprised. She's amazed. Well, the grace, the gracious encounter continues here with Jesus talk about the gift of God. Verse, <clears throat> verse 10. Jesus answered her. Now remember, He just asked her for a drink. Like I say, he, that's a setup. He's setting up the discussion. And she's surprised and now Jesus replies to her reply. Verse 10. He answered her, If you knew the gift of God 
And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. So, Jesus says, look, essentially, number one, if you knew the gift of God, and number two, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for a drink. And I would give you living water. Making a, a distinction, you know. Not, in other words, not just spring water from a well, but living water. The gift of God, I, I think, here specifically is a reference to um, the eternal life that John keeps talking about. I want you to, I want you to believe that He's the Christ, so that believing in Him, you may have life. In His name. But if you want to just say it this way, and I often do, I think this is absolutely correct. The, the gift of God is Jesus. Right? He is eternal life. He is eternal life. Or we could use His own definition in John 17.3. This is eternal life that they may know You, Father, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom You've sent. So, it includes the knowledge of God. The true knowledge of the one true living God. That's what eternal life is. Don't, don't confuse it with existing eternally. If I'm reading and understanding the Bible correctly, every soul will exist eternally. To live in that sense, eternally, is what every single person is going to do. But not every single person is going to have eternal life in the sense that Jesus is talking about. Because some will exist eternally apart from God, suffering the torment of eternal hell. When Jesus talks about eternal life, He's talking about knowing the one true God and fellowshipping with Him, being in His presence, enjoying Him now and forever. So that's the gift of God. It's, it's Jesus. It's the knowledge of God. It's eternal life. It's all of those, all of those things. Another interesting <clears throat> note, I think, and, and uh, still uh, would hold true, um, it may be that he's using a, uh, something she would be familiar with. And I, and I think uh, uh, this makes sense to me also because of his discussion with Nicodemus. But this idea of the gift of God was, was a category they were familiar with that they, they, they would use to refer to the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament. The books of Moses. And one distinction between the Samaritans and the Jews was that the Samaritans considered the Torah to be the Word of God, but not the rest of the Old Testament. Where the Jews... It was what, what we would call the whole Old Testament. From, from Genesis to Malachi, that's the, that is the Word of God for the Jews. Samaritans rejected it except for the first five books. The gift of God. The Torah. So maybe that what Jesus is saying here is something she would have picked up on real quick. If you knew the Torah, 
if you knew the Scripture like you think you do, then you would know who it is that's talking to you and you'd be asking me for a drink. Now that's essentially the same thing Jesus did with Nicodemus when He started talking about the new birth. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? He was exposing His own ignorance about His own religion, His own worship. At any rate, either way, Jesus is offering living water here. Eternal life through faith in Him. So that's the gift of God that He's talking about. Now, it's also a personal encounter. That's number three. It's a personal encounter. Let me read on from verse 11. The woman said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Now notice, um, she either didn't pick up on what Jesus was doing in verse 10 when He's talking about the living water because He's talking about spiritual things. Or, you know, she's just kind of trying to ignore it. But she's, she's thinking to herself, I would ask you for a drink? Wait a minute, you don't even have... You don't even have any, anything to draw water with. How are you going to do this? Again, it's kind of like Nicodemus saying, what do you mean born again? Does a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? I mean, In other words, Nicodemus just saying, I don't, I'm not getting what you're talking about. And that's what she's doing. You don't even have anything to draw with. Where are you going to get this living water? And then she asks an interesting question here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? You know, she's thinking, this water's pretty good coming out of this well. <laughs> we, get, we get refreshed by it all the time. We come down here when we're thirsty. We use it to water our flocks. We use it to quench our own thirst. We're pretty happy with it. And Jacob was a great man. In fact, Jews agree on that, right? Are you, are you making yourself greater? Are you greater? Are you saying you've got better water for us than what Jacob has provided? That's kind of what's built into the question here. What a good question that is. And Jesus gives her a good answer. An affirmative answer. She says of Jacob, He gave us the well and drank from it Himself, as did His sons and His livestock. Jesus said to her, now listen closely here to what Jesus said, because this is His way of saying yes. The question is, are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus is answering, yes. Verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So it's kind of one of those, figure it out for yourself. You drink from the well that he gave you and you thirst again. You drink from the well that I'm talking about and you'll never thirst again. Now which is greater? The woman said, Sir, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
When you, it's, it's amazing. When you start talking about meeting our physical needs and desires, you can stir up some interest real quick, right? You, you talk about, look, I, I can provide this and you'll never have to come draw water again. Or I, I can provide this and you'll never get thirsty again. And she's thinking completely in terms of physical need, physical satisfaction, physical fulfillment. And that's obvious by our lifestyle, isn't it? And everybody else is without Christ. We could say the same thing about Nicodemus. He was living an entirely different lifestyle, but nevertheless, self-serving. But when he's talking about quenching physical thirst, she gets very interested. Tell me how to get this. Give me this water so that I won't be thirsty again, so that I won't have to come here to draw. I mean, we're killing two birds with one stone here. I don't have this thirst anymore, plus I don't have to work. I don't have to come here and draw water anymore. But Jesus is not talking about a mere physical need. And here's where He gets personal. Verse 16. Go call your husband and come here. Now where did that come from? That just came out of nowhere, didn't it? We're talking about water and a well and Jacob. And, and being thirsty. And she's saying, yes, I want my thirst quenched. And yes, I don't want to have to come here and draw. Give me this water. Well, that's what he's working on, but it doesn't sound like it, does it? I mean, he just totally came out of left field, it sounds like. Go call your husband. But you, you know what he's doing? He's, he's, he's doing the same thing he does over and over and over when he's dealing with people. Jesus aims for the heart. He's a good shot. I mean, he never misses. But he goes straight for the heart. The core of the, the, core of the problem. It's like, it's like a skilled surgeon, you know, just cutting into you. Not, not haphazardly, I'm mean, just cutting you to pieces, but, but cutting in and getting right down to where the core of the problem is. And here's one reason, and we're going to see it in a second here, some more of some of the symptoms in her life. But here's why Jesus goes for the heart. Because the symptoms will pass if you cure the disease. I mean, you can put band-aids on sores all day and just keep putting them on, putting them on. But if there's a cancer at work in your body that's causing those sores, band-aids and cure comb and all that kind of stuff, ain't going to do a whole lot. But if you attack the cancer and wipe it out, the sores will go away. So people are a lot of times are, are looking. Sometimes, sometimes people are looking for for ways to deal with symptoms. You know, how do I stop committing sexual sin? <clears throat> how do I stop substance abuse? How do I stop gossiping? How do I stop envying? How do I stop grumbling and complaining? How can I be a godly spouse or parent or child? How do I stop being self-serving? 
and serve others to the glory of God. How can I be satisfied and have joy in the Lord? Well, you've got to deal with the disease. I mean, if, you, if you just attack those individual things, you're, you're probably not going to get real far. And don't get me wrong, I mean, giving up sexual sin, immorality, giving up gossiping, giving up any of that, that's good. But you've got to get down to the disease. You've you got to get rid of that. I mean, you've got to deal with the heart. And then the symptoms will go away. So Jesus shoots for the heart. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him. Verse 17. The woman answered him. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Isn't that amazing? I mean, she just... Wait a minute. I, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're, you're correct. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? You're correct. You're right to say that. But you've had five, and the one you now have is not even your husband. You're correct to say you don't have a husband. I mean, he's got real personal. That's the way he always does. Now, it's, it's different with different people. Nicodemus had different issues. Jesus got personal with him too. You're, you're the teacher of Israel. And, and, I, and you don't even understand when I tell you about earthly things. How are you going to understand when I tell you about heavenly things? And I'm telling you about what I know is true. We bear witness of what we've seen and heard, Jesus said. And yet, you, Nicodemus, don't receive our testimony. See, Nicodemus had different issues. But he still had issues. Everybody does. And Jesus knows who's got which ones. And he shoots right at the heart. Nicodemus was caught up in a what was largely a man-made religion. I mean, it was supposed to be the true worship of God, but they had just perverted it to an extreme. That's not this woman's problem. Her major issue is sexual sin, and that's what Jesus targets, first of all. Now, again, it's not because He's concentrating on the symptoms either. He just knows where her weakness is, and He's getting right to the heart. It's got real personal. So, fourthly, it's an uncomfortable encounter. I almost want to just... I don't know. I, I'm tempted here to just make a, uh, an across-the-board statement here. Maybe it's not absolute. But I, I think this must always be the case. When, when God starts dealing with somebody, starts shining light in on your heart and your life, it gets very uncomfortable. It gets very uncomfortable. When He starts showing us who we are, it, it gets uncomfortable. So she, she thinks she's got a remedy for that. Change the subject. Okay? So, <laughs> so Jesus is directing the conversation, so she's going to try to take over now. 
So she says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive, perceive that you are a prophet. Ah, good observation. I mean, he just read her mail, basically. And she says, you know what? There's something special about you. I think you might be a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, what's she going to do with that? Say, tell me more. Tell me more about my sin. Tell me, tell me what I need to do to repent. Tell me how I need to get right. No. What she's going to do is hit him with a theological question. It's, it's a whole lot easier to talk about abstract theology than it is to focus in on personal sin. I mean, we can argue all day long about things like the doctrine of election or baptism, the mode of, proper mode of baptism, or, you know, just on and on and on. And I'm not saying there's... Certainly there are places and times for those discussions. But I'm just saying it's easier to engage in those kinds of things than it is to talk about personal failure. Talk about where my weaknesses are and where sin has taken me in my life. So that's what she tries to do. Let's, let's, just, let's just lighten the subject here. Let's, let's, let's have a theological debate. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. That's because that, she's bringing that up because that, that was one of the conflicts between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans said Mount Gerizim in Samaria was, was the locale. That's where you had to worship if you were going to really worship God. And the Jews, rightly by the way, the Jews were right on this, the Jews said no, it, it had to be Jerusalem. God had chosen Jerusalem. That's why the temple was there. And Jesus responds this way in verse 21. And this, by the way, is the next, the next one, number five. It's a spiritual encounter. I mean, he's, he's going he's gonna to take uh, the whole conversation here and, and really take it home to where he's been headed all the time, talking about spiritual truth, spiritual need, spiritual remedy, spiritual worship. That's where he's going with it. Here's what he says, verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. And here he goes again, verse 23. But the hour is coming... And is now here. Did you hear that? This is this is another one of those already and not yet instances. And this this is how it's 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 coming out all the way through the gospel. I mean, all of this talk about eternal life is already and not yet. You see the word salvation. Think of already and not yet. Fellowship with God already and not yet. In, in the other gospels, there's more emphasis on. Uh, or more use of the phraseology, the kingdom of God. Again, already, not yet. There's, there's much to look forward to in the future. But 
there's a sense in which for the believer it is already realized. And Jesus is saying, the time is coming, and now is. He's saying, there's, there's something happening now. There, there is a change, a transition taking place. And I'm telling you, He says, this, this disagreement, it may have had its time and place. No, the Jews were right. The, the, the proper place was Jerusalem, not Mount Gerizim. But Jesus is saying, that no longer matters. It's not about locale anymore. When you think of worship, it's not about locale. It's about the nature of it. In other words, what kind of worship are we talking about here? Well, He's going to tell us. So here, here again is what He says. Verse, verse 23, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and truth. Now, I told you, at I, 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 this point, I called it a spiritual encounter. Now, I'm, I'm using the term spiritual in this way. To sum up the two aspects that Jesus gives here of true worship. Genuine worship, he describes as worship in spirit and in truth. So that is it is it is spiritual in nature. It is of the spirit. But it's also the fact that it is worship in truth um, is also uh, indicating a spiritual nature. Because there's no knowledge of God, you know, apart from spiritual knowledge. God is spirit. That's what, what John says here, verse 24. God is spirit. And so, worship of the God who is spirit has to be consistent with His nature. It's got to be spiritual worship. So what we're, what we're talking about here, just to kind of simplify it, it's, it's not a mere outward expression. It's not where you worship, Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem. It's how you worship, or the nature of your worship. Spirit and truth. So real quick, because we're out of time here, but um, first of all, in spirit, true, true worship is the result of the work of God who is spirit upon the human heart. And we saw this back in chapter 3 when Jesus was talking about the new birth. Spirit of God, the wind blows where He wills. And you see the result. Why? Because He changes hearts. So worship in Spirit is the result of the work of God on an individual. In other words, you must be born again. It is not mere outward expression such as ceremonial rites. It requires the active engagement of the heart. You go back and read passages like Isaiah 29, and that's exactly what was lacking in the worship in Old Testament Israel. They had all the outward form, but the heart was not engaged. 
No love for God. No adoration for God. Jesus is saying that must be present. And then secondly, in truth. He says it must be in spirit and in truth. Worship, in order to be genuine, must be truth-based and truth-driven. I mean, there's got to, it's got to be founded upon truth, grounded in truth, and it's got to be a pursuit of truth. I think that's always the case. That never stops. Some, a, a true worshiper worships based on knowledge of truth. It's not, it's just, not just stuff out of, out of midair. You know, fluffy feelings and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, I, I felt led. And by the way, it's not, I'm not making fun of... It's not always bad to feel led. I'm not, but I'm just, sometimes we overdo it. And we just say, I, I just felt led to do this. And there's no scriptural grounds. Well, authentic worship is truth-based. It, it works out of here. It's all based upon the truth about who God is. And when I say truth, I mean who He really is. The reality. So it's not just stuff we made up in our head. You know, I like for God to be this way. And I like for God to be this way. And, and boy, I can really worship a God like that. And so that's what drives our worship, our idea of God. And Jesus is saying, it's got to be grounded in truth. Or else you've got nothing more than idolatry. If you carve out your own God, it doesn't matter if it's in a block of wood or a block of stone or if it's just an idea in your head. If you carve out your own God, you've got an idol. And you don't have worship. True worship. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. So, it's truth-based and it's truth-driven. And worship that is not grounded in truth and does not include pursuit of truth is no worship. And this ought to really catch our attention. God is seeking these, this kind of worshipers. Verse 23. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In other words, this is the kind of worshiper God wants. People who worship in spirit and truth, this is the kind of worshiper God is seeking. That, that, that's just a, a, an amazing statement. Uh, but we'll move on. This is the last point and we're done. <clears throat> Lastly, it's a divine encounter. Listen, <clears throat> we, we've, already, we've already seen this really further back. Jesus knew all about her, didn't He? Knew her situation. Knew where to find her. He knew all about her. Because He's God. But He makes an explicit statement here. Remember our, our key verse from John 20? John wants us to know that He's the Christ and to believe. This is the first time and really the only time that Jesus just this explicitly... Um, well, I, I can think of one other occasion where He heals the blind man. And later in a conversation, Jesus asks him, do you believe on the Christ? And he, he essentially says, well, I don't know who He is. If I knew who He was, I would. And 
And Jesus says, I that speak to you am He. But that is so rare. This is the only other occasion I can think of. I mean, He has religious leaders asking Him for that answer. And I can't even think of a place where where He says it this explicitly with His own disciples. I mean, He gives the information. All the evidence is there. But here He just comes right out and says it. She says in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. That is that Christ, the anointed one, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You've got to wonder here if she's not starting to get suspicious, right? Because she, you know, the way she says this, she's starting to pick up on it. Maybe, maybe, you know, there's something, there's really something strange about this guy. And Jesus says in verse 26, I who speak to you. Am He? I love that phrase in the Greek. It's ego ami. I am. That's what Jesus says to her. I am. We're going to see it again. John eight fifty eight. We're going to see it in more places than that. But that's one where He says, "Before Abraham was, I am. I am." And the I is emphatic. She says, "I know that Christ is coming." And Jesus says, "Ah." I am the one speaking to you. It's a divine encounter. She's met God. It's like it's like Jacob, who she was talking about earlier at Bethel. Surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. Only now he's making it known. And that's part of the encounter. I mean, God comes. And He graciously confronts us, graciously exposes our sin, uncomfortably, but graciously nonetheless. And He graciously speaks to us and begins to make Himself known to us until He brings us to the knowledge that He is the Christ and the only source of eternal life. The only source of living water. That's that's what an encounter with the Christ looks like. Let's pray.